is Jenny Allen, and you are listening to the Made for This podcast. Hey guys, Chloe here, and I want to make sure that you know about If Lead 2021 that's coming up on Saturday, August 7th. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to text a couple friends right now. You're going to go to iflead2021.com, I-F-L-E-A-D 2021.com, and you're going to sign up to join us. It's Saturday, August 7th, and I'm telling you guys, If Lead is one of my favorite days of the entire year. We know that you're busy, you're pouring out, you're doing a lot of stuff for your families, your coworkers, and this is just truly a chance to stop, to get equipped, to learn. The breakouts are absolutely incredible this year. You don't want to miss it. This year, you will get to sit under the teaching of Jenny, of course, Jill Briscoe, Joshua Ryan Butler, Tony Collier, John Mark Comer, Jess Conley, Annie Downs, Jada Edwards, our friends Louie and Shelly Giglio, Lisa Harper, Earl and Onika McClellan, Latasha Morrison, Ruth Simons. I mean, it goes on, guys. Lisa Turkers is going to be there. Dr. Thompson that we've had on the podcast a few times now. Like, If Lead is going to be absolutely incredible this year. Don't miss it. Go to iflead2021.com and sign up today. Now, I can't wait for you guys to hear this conversation with Ginny and Rich Philotus. Well, I'm excited to introduce you to a new friend. We are excited about this guy because he is putting words to, to things that that I think a lot about, I think you think a lot about, and he's bringing clarity around specifically spiritual formation and what does it look like for us to live out as believers in this culture, the different values that God has for us. And and so, Rich, I'm excited you're here. Thanks for being here. Tell everybody just a little bit about yourself before we start. Yeah, I am uh, the husband of Rosie. Uh, we've been married for 15 years, the father of Karis, to Karis and Nathan, a uh, 12-year-old and a six-year-old. And I have the privilege of pastoring New Life Fellowship Church, a church in Queens, New York City, in an area where National Geographic called the most diverse zip code in the world, uh, with 123 languages spoken in the neighborhood, 75 nations represented in our congregation. Yeah, I've been there for 12 years, the lead pastor for the past eight years, and trying to figure out the world in a COVID and post-COVID political hostile, racial tensions, yeah, a CPR world as I call it, uh, trying to figure out ministry and pastoring and leadership and following Jesus in the particular world we're in. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the very large club of us. And I do think that what you are doing and how you are verbalizing some things that matter to me specifically, it's incredible. I wanna start actually by reading a quote from your book, The Deeply Formed Life. Just the title, Rich, is amazing. And let it be true of us that we have deeply formed lives as believers. So this is the quote. Our most effective strategy in reaching a world for Christ is grounded in the kind of people we are being formed into. The quality of our presence is our mission. The troubling reality is that believers can be deeply committed to being Christian without being deeply formed by Christ. So this idea of being formed by Jesus, talk about what that means. What, are, what do you mean when you talk about being formed? At, at, the th- at the core of what I'm getting at, and I got this title out of a passage in the book of Galatians, where Paul writes, 
I am in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And what I remember, I remember reading that and going, this is what I'm trying to get at as a pastor. This is what I'm trying to be as a follower of Christ. I want the very life of Jesus formed in me. I want to be conformed to the image of the son. And so it came out of that there. So what I'm getting at is what does it look like for us to be the presence of Christ in the world? which is what I believe a Christian is to be, not just a follower of Jesus, but the very presence of Jesus, his ex, the body of Christ in the world. So, But it is that language in, in Galatians where Paul talks about the pains of childbirth until Christ being formed in you. I'm trying to name something that has been true of the Christian story for 2,000 years. I'm just using uh, different language to try to address the cultural moment we're in. But at the core of it, it's Jesus Christ being formed in us. I think of a song that is taken from a scripture, Christ in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's one of my favorite songs. And I think for a lot of people, it's hard to get their head around that, that that is something maybe they've heard that that Christ is in me, but how does that actually feel and look? And how do we know if we are being formed? How do we know if Christ is growing in us? Talk a little bit about just the practical nature of what that looks like and appears to look like in other people. I mean, at the core of it, how do we know that Christ is working through us? I think the essence of it is love. I mean, that's the essence of it. By this, you will know my, they will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. This is the essence of 1 Corinthians 13, the essence of his teachings throughout the Sermon on the Mount and the rest of the Gospels. Uh, it is it is a love, but it is a countercultural love. It's not a love that's uh, marked by sentimentality. It's not a love that's based on uh, affinity. It, it's it's a supernatural love that undermines, in many respects, the ways of the world uh, because it is otherworldly. Uh, and so, the deeply formed life is at its you know at, at the essence of it. How do I live the life of Jesus through the power of the Spirit? in many various facets of the world, whether we're talking about prayer, whether we're talking about race, whether we're talking about sexuality, the interior life, missional justice, et cetera. But if you're gonna narrow it down to one thing, uh, I don't think we're being oversimplistic when we're saying it is a life of uh, cruciform love. That is not what Christians are known for currently. <laughs> Sad. Very disturbing. Sadly, many of us are not. Uh, and so we have a wonderful invitation before us. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, let's just go to culture for a minute. Let's back up and out of what should be and the ideal. And let's talk about what is. What do you see fighting against this? What is what is the problem that Christians are facing in this moment? Uh, can I can I be so simplistic? It's <laughs> such a big question. I, I think there's so many different problems, but I'll I'll begin with one, I, I I was my initial thought was gonna say cable news discipleship, but uh I'll Maybe that'll be number two or three on my list. Okay, but I'll take it. Cable <laughs> news discipleship. Oh my goodness, that is deep. Okay. Maybe that's two or three, but I think at the core of the challenge that we have is this inability to manage our anxiety. Anxiety is really about reactivity. Anxiety is a, um, an automatic response to a threat, whether it's real or perceived, actual or perceived. I don't know if Christians have done enough work trying to be a non-anxious, loving presence in the world. 
Consequently, we're just fueled by our anxiety, our reactivity, our fears, whether real or perceived. And so part of you know, what I'm trying to get at with the book and just generally as a pastor and as a follower of Christ is, to what degree have I become conversant with my interior life? So much so where I can actually be present with someone who sees the world quite differently than I do. That I can be present with them even though we might not be on the same page theologically, uh, sociologically, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, so I think part of it is we don't know how to remain close to ourselves and remain close to others, especially in times of high anxiety. Uh, at, at, you know, this is actually good family systems theory talk here about self-differentiation. And so that, I think that's the primary problem actually. Uh, and then- You're gonna need to back up, back up the truck a minute and talk about self-differentiation. Yeah, self-differentiation is this phrase that comes out of family systems theory. And I've been writing a lot about it recently and I've been a student of it for a number of years. And my definition of it is this, it is remaining close and curious to God, myself and others in times of high anxiety and resisting the polar opposite pull of enmeshment or cutting off. And so, I mean, I could break it down. I mean, I'm remaining close and curious to God. What is God saying to me in this moment? And I'm remaining close and curious to myself. It's often the case that uh, Christians uh, use God, my, not just to run from God, but to use God to run from ourselves. And so how can I remain close and curious to God close and curious to myself and close and curious to others in times of high anxiety. I mean, the problem with the church and Christians is we don't know how to do this well. Consequently, we go the route of either cutting people off, whether through violence or whether through emotional disengagement and such, or refuse. Uh, we don't have a voice anymore. Uh, we kind of blend in. Uh, and, and my church, it people on both ends of the spectrum, and I've been on both ends of the spectrum, just depending on who I'm in conversation with. But yes, I think self-differentiation is critical for the particular moment we're in. How many people are really glad I backed that truck up? And he just explained that because that was profound. And I think you're right. That is at the core of where we find ourselves today. I think curiosity is one of the greatest evangelism tools we have, that if we truly are curious about other people and find them worth knowing, <laughs> that that is the beginning of a relationship that that could lead to a conversation about God. And so the fact that right now everybody's curiosity is off and everybody's defenses are up, I don't know. I just, I think you're exactly right. How does one live curious when you feel like you're encountering enemies all the time, <laughs> all the time. I purposely follow a lot of people that I don't agree with to keep an understanding of what people I don't agree with are feeling and thinking and to honestly keep my compassion that if I can just see them talking, even if I disagree with it and watch their children's faces and follow them on Instagram, not Twitter. I don't go to Twitter for this. <laughs> but I can actually see, okay, this is someone that I probably would like in person, and I will hear some more of the nuance of where they're coming from. And, and I think that's, you know, that's just online, more or less the people in my real life. And we've all got to be practicing that. You talk about five different transformative values that are core to the believer. And I'd love for you to run high-level past those. I know it's the, the whole of the book, so I'm not going to ask you to go deeply into all of them, but real quickly, 
Tell us what those five things are. Yeah, I mean, uh, the first one is contemplative rhythms. And I, what I'll do is I'll, I'll give you the, the actual value and I'll give like a, a one sentence line that kind of sums it up. So the first is contemplative rhythms, which is really about slowing down to catch up to God. Uh, the second is about racial reconciliation. And for me, that sentence is that the gospel is powerful enough to create a new barrier breaking family. Uh, the third value is interior examination. Uh, and for me, that's getting at this truth that Jesus wants to transform every aspect of our lives, especially our inner life. Uh, four is, is uh, sexual wholeness. Uh, sentence to try to distill that is that our bodies must be integrated, not separated from our spirituality, or sexuality must be integrated, not separated from our spirituality. And then fifth, missional presence is that it is better to be in God for the world than to be in the world for God. Uh, and so at the core of what I'm wow. getting at is contemplative rhythms, racial reconciliation, interior examination, sexual wholeness, missional presence. And I'm trying to say all of these things actually belong together. And at the core of this project is trying to resist what I call formational compartmentalization in which people want to hold on to certain aspects of formation and say, I don't really need the other stuff. And I'm saying, no, all of this belongs. Wow. And you don't see that largely. You you hear the echo chambers. I actually believe, and I'll be curious if you agree with this, that a lot of believers are holding all those tensions. I actually think there are a lot. I think they're probably not as loud because they're trying to do that in their real lives in kindness and obedience and faithfulness. But I think, and everywhere I go, I see it, a lot of people are not standing on the ends of the spectrum shouting from a political place. A lot of people are just head down, suffering, raising their kids, reading their Bibles, trying to cultivate the little piece of earth they've been given. Do you agree with that or am I naive and way too optimistic? No, I mean, as a pastor of a church by New York City standards, it's, you know, fairly large church, about 1,500 people who attend here, the vast... I, believe me, I have those people in my church who are very loud <laughs> on various sides of the political and sociological spectrum. Uh, but the vast, yeah, I think you're right. The vast majority of people are trying to figure out what does it mean to be in relationship with God? How do I love well? How do I figure out, uh, let alone a global pandemic, my finances and the job that I don't like? So I would say absolutely. Folks are just trying to figure it out. And I meet these people every single Sunday. So I would say for me, that's really spot on. That's encouraging because, uh, yeah, you don't you don't feel that way when you watch the news and you're being discipled by it. And you don't feel that way when you're on Twitter, which is why I got off of it. So let's talk about spiritual formation and, and how that actually grows in us. Of course, we know, like the old saying, everybody, everybody thinks they're going to know the answer to this question right here. How do you walk with Jesus and become like Jesus and be that presence in the world? It's to be with Jesus, right? Like that's the right answer to have a quiet time. That's what the Christians learned when we were young. And that certainly is, I'm sure, part of your answer. But talk about what it looks like to actually be with God, not just settle for whatever the standard is right now in Christendom, which is probably pretty low, actually. Yeah. Being with God for me, and this really gets at the contemplative rhythms that I talk about, uh, is about sharing presence and moving away from a kind of transactionalism. Prayer is often transactional. I, I say particular words and God does particular things and we say, okay, that's what prayer is. 
But I think prayer is much deeper than trying. I'm for petitions. I'm for asking God to do things. I'm for praying big prayers. Um, I do all those things. But at the essence of my life with God is me not asking for much. At the essence of my life with God is me sharing presence with God and sharing presence with God in a kind of silence, um, recognizing that God is closer to me than I am to myself. That's St. Augustine. And I want to discern God's presence in the midst of quiet. How do I do that? Well, I, I think for me, it requires a normalizing of boredom. Brennan Manning once said, we have to ask ourselves a big question. Do we worship God or do we worship our experiences of God? And I think that's a very mm. provocative question because I think the vast majority of people worship experiences rather than God. How do I know when the experiences are no longer there, we give up on our rhythms. We give up on our discipline mm. because it really is, I want to feel a certain way. Um, but uh, you could, you could really, you could tell the level of intimacy that someone has based on their willingness and ability to be still in that person's presence. I mean, Jenny, we just met each other. And so it would be, if we went for like a two hour car ride, it'd be really awkward if there was just like silence all <laughs> throughout the ride. We, we want to talk about anything. Why? Because we've just met. Right. But if I'm, if I'm taking a five hour car ride with my wife or with my brother, a best friend, there's plenty of space to have large intervals of silence because uh, our ability to be silent with someone is often a reflection of our familiarity. You know, what does it say about our lives if we cannot be silent with God? Maybe we're not as familiar with God as we think we are, or maybe we have relegated prayer and the spiritual life to what I can get out of it. But at the core of it, I want to share presence with the living God. And out of that place, be a person who can share presence with my spouse and with my children and with people that I lead. Uh, but it flows for me out of this unhurried, non-transactional commitment to just being with God. Let's go to your last phrase of the five transformative values. You talk about it is better for the Christian to be in God for the world than to be in the world for God. Talk about that. That actually makes me very curious, that line. Yeah. And I got that from Dr. Robert Mulholland. Uh, he was a professor at Asbury Seminary. We had him at our church a few times. Uh, a delightful man, passed away a couple of years ago. Yeah. It's, it's the notion that I, I can be in the world for God. To be in the world for God is in, in many respects, it's I am carrying a particular banner that I think God is concerned about. And so whatever the issue is, I'm going to carry that in the name of God. I'm going to defend God. I'm going to highlight the particular things that I think God is either mad about or are pained about, whatever it might be. But here's the thing about that. I can be in the world for God without God. I can do all that without a relationship with God. To be in God for the world, I'm not saying, in doing that, I'm not um, placing an emphasis on being with God without being engaged in the world. For both of these things, it's a, it's, we're engaging the world. We're reaching the world. We're announcing the good news of the kingdom of God. But in the one sense, I could do it without God. And, and, the, and the, uh, the former sense of in God for the world, I'm doing it with God. I'm doing it in God. My very life now is an overflow of God's gracious uh, activity in my life. So 
it's it, it's very interesting. And I think Jesus gets at this when he's when all these people say, Lord, we did all these things in your name. We did this and we cast out demons and we did all this. And Jesus says, I never knew you. I, I never knew who you were. I think those folks were in the world for God. Uh, but those who are in God for the world are actually cultivating this life with God out of which they speak and live and serve. I'm going to ask a really controversial question. You ready? What does it mean for the people that are the latter? Like, do are you curious about salvation for a lot of Christians right now? Like, how does that feel when you look out and you see so many Christians that are angry and doing exactly what you just said? Does that scare you for them? Or, or wh where do you put that in your mind? Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm frightened for anyone who is in the world for God in that kind of way. Usually the folks who are in the world for God in that way are very anxious, are fear-driven, uh, which then brings out that kind of animosity, anger, othering, marginalization. It flows out of a place of deep fear and anxiety. And for me, it, it, it demonstrates there is a level of bondage there. Because those who, those who are in God for the world are those who have the fruit of the spirit activated in mm. them. There's a joy, there's a peace, there's not a striving, there's not a, a coercion, there's no manipulation. It's, you're getting the best of the spirit of God flowing through you. And so for the folks who are in that other category, my heart grieves significantly because for me, it, 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 it feels like, you know, the, the language that Paul uses is it, it looks like faith, but it lacks the power thereof. I, I'm, I'm, this, this, um, that verse is skipping my mind right now, but uh, it has like this, this, this showing of faith, but it lacks power. It lacks, but, and, but the power of God demonstrated by the fruit of the spirit. And, and so my heart grieves for people because to live in that way is often marked by deep, deep fear and anxiety. And I trust God is gracious to these people and offers peace to these people, but uh, it is quite a terrible existence to live when you're trying to be in the world for God and that's marked by anxiety and fear. So you're a person of color and you have been living in the midst of a very divided world. What is your heart for that division? Like, where do we go from here? Yeah, I, I think there's so many ways to answer that question. Um, I, I think part of getting back to what I said initially about self-differentiation, um, you know, I pastor a very diverse congregation that is diverse uh, ethnically, racially, generationally, socio you know, sociologically, every, every bit of diversity you can find is, is in our church. And I have come back over and over again how do I hold this congregation? Last year was a very difficult year for our church. And some folks were leaving. For me, I'm asking as a pastor, how do we hold this community together? And I do think it's back to that self-differentiation and, and trying to model something. I'll give you an example of this. Two weeks before the election last year, I received an email 
around. I hope I, I decided to, I know Jenny, you don't do this, but um, I did. I opened it up right before I went to bed, the email, and uh, which is the worst thing you could possibly do. Just opening up an email right before you go to bed. It's always the Satan sends those emails or uses people to send emails at late at night before you go to bed. And so uh, I, I look at it, but this wasn't an email sent by Satan. It was one sent by one of our pastors. And our, one of our pastors said, Hey, Rich, I have a great idea you know, two weeks before the election, I think we should have this virtual event on Zoom where we get a new life for one of our congregants who's voting for Trump and one who's voting for Biden. And let's have them be in a conversation for like 30 to 40 minutes before like <laughs> people. And, and how's that sound? Oh, and wow. with great faith, and unshakable confidence in God, I said, no, we're not gonna do that. Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, and I was like, are you crazy? She said, it could be two of our elders. You know, I was like, even worse, you know? And so <laughs> uh, after some more conversation, I decided to go along with it. And two weeks before the election, one of our elders, uh, a Korean American man in his early fifties who was voting for Trump, and a Puerto Rican man in his 60s who was going to be voting for Biden. Uh, we got on Zoom. There were maybe over 100 people from our congregation who was waiting for this conversation. And it was going to be moderated by a young African-American millennial, you know. So that's how things are in Queens over here. And so, cool. uh, and so we're having the conversation. And by the way, I'd pay tickets to see this, right? <laughs> in that moment, I would have paid good money. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> this was free. This was free. But it was so funny because right when we went on Zoom, before I showed my face, like on the camera, I'm thinking, this is going to be awful. This is going to be the worst thing ever. And then, you know, I showed my face and I did the pastor thing. Hey, everyone, this is going to be great. This is going to be the best <laughs> ever. I was lying, you know, and, yeah. and then we did it. And, and you know what, was it awkward? There were some really awkward moments. Mm. And part of me did not, did not want to look at the chat section because yep. of like what is happening in the chat section on zoom right now. And I would look and go, Oh no, it's getting a little close your eyes. Yeah. <laughs> but what I really loved was the two elders and that, and the moderator, they were curious hmm. and they were humble and they were thoughtful. And I thought, you know what? I think we're trying to model something here. Uh, and, but, but it came back to that self-differentiation. How can I be close and curious to God, to myself, and to others in mm. terms of high anxiety. I did a whole six week sermon series on God, politics and the church before the election. And I started every sermon by saying, whether you vote for Trump or whether you vote for Biden, you are welcome in this church. I only ask that you would be curious about why someone votes differently and that you would view your decisions in light of the kingdom of God and the gospel, that, I, that you would continue to do that over and over again. But mm. I think it's back to that, idea of self-differentiation. Well, I want to go to your personal life and where this book and message came from for you. This book, I'd say I wrote this book because of three reasons. The first reason it came out of pastoral concern. I would preach messages on contemplative life and racial justice and interior examination. And people over and over would say, when you say that, what do you mean? When you say this, what do you mean? And so I just realized my congregation needed a particular resource 
just to hold these things together. And so when I wrote it, I wrote it with uh, Beverly Jacobs in mind, who sits in the third row down the center in the first service. I thought about John Evangelista and Tony and Mabel Jeremita. The people who come to our church, I wrote it primarily for them. And in that respect, much like Eugene Peterson, he, trans he, he paraphrased the Bible and the message, but a lot of people don't know that came out of a Bible study. Uh, he wanted his people to understand the book of Galatians. And so he said, let me write it in an accessible language for the everyday person. I wrote this book primarily for the people who attend New Life. The second reason I wrote it is because each one of these values have impacted me significantly. I'm 42 years old. I became a Christian at 19. Me and 15 family members. This is That's for another conversation. Wow. My parents, my brother, my, si my sisters, cousins, uncles, dogs, everyone came to Christ that night. And <laughs> I was in the first five years exposed to just a wide array of Christian traditions and streams of Christian life. And so when I write about these things, I'm writing about uh, these themes that have, and values that have meant a lot to me over 23 years. But then lastly, I wrote it because, and this might sound a bit like an overreach, but I, I believe I'm trying to offer an ambitious reframing of spiritual formation for our generation. And I'm basically saying, I love what other people have done in the past, the Richard Fosters of the world, all the people who are in the spiritual formation space. I love them. I, I have all their books. I've learned from them. But I'm trying to say, I think for our generation, we need to reframe it and hold together aspects of formation that are typically not in the conversation. Uh, but those are the three reasons I wrote this book. There's somebody listening right now that they're feeling a little bothered by our conversation earlier, and they want to know... What does it look like to have strong convictions in the world right now? They love God and they love his word and they see a culture decaying around them and they are angry. And they do think that by fighting for something with a loud voice and a heavy hand, that that is helpful and making a difference. And that's their way of being brave and courageous. What would you say to them? Yeah, I would say having strong values is a great thing. I, I think having great convictions and deep convictions is a great thing. What I would ask is, is the way that we are going about communicating and expressing those values consistent with what we see in Jesus, consistent with what we see in the fruit of the spirit, consistent with love? Are the convictions that I carry, uh, you know, part, part of the work of naming our convictions and holding on to our values is discerning, regularly discerning, are the convictions that I'm holding actually reflected in Holy Scripture? Is this coming out of my own anxiety, my own fears, or is this actually being formed by what we see revealed in Holy Scripture? And so I think it's great to have values. I think it's great. I have tons of values. I have tons of convictions. At the same time, I want to be by God's grace, humble enough to say, is the way that I'm carrying them consistent with the way of Jesus, consistent with what we see in 1 Corinthians 13 and Galatians 5 and the fruit of the spirit, and perhaps more deeply are even the values that I'm holding. Some people have had values for a long time and is not necessarily has flowed out of the gospels. You know, we say at New Life that Jesus might be in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones. Another, another way of meaning that your family of origin has shaped you so profoundly. And we don't even think that it's our family. We think it's God who's done it. 
And for so many of us know the messages that we have, the, the scripts that we carry are often not shaped by the gospel, often shaped by our parents and our grandparents. Have we done the work to identify the values that we carry and how consistent they are with Jesus? So um, I love those things, but I think all of our values need to be constantly examined and re-examined. So someone listening right now is burnt out and they can't completely figure out why. And what would you say to them? For someone who's burned out, which at our church, we get a lot of people burned out because they hear language of emotional health and they go, I want to go to your church because I'm, I'm burned out from the last church that I'm in. Um, I, I would say, first of all, that God is with you, you know, in your, in your fatigue and your exhaustion, you know, God loves you. God, God is with you. I also think that there's some significant self-examination that's required here. How did you get here? Uh, what are the stories that you've been telling yourself that brought you to this place? You know, it's often the case that we think uh, burnout is not just uh, doing a lot of work. Burnout flows from trying to give what I don't have. And we can only give what we have. And when we try to give what we don't have, we're going to live an exhausted, burned out existence. And so, you know, what are the stories and messages that have fueled the kind of exhaustion and burnout. I think we, a vacation is not going to solve this. A, a sabbatical, I love sabbaticals, is not going to solve this unless we are getting deeper down to the stories and the internal messages that are actually fueling our activity and our exhaustion. We're going to find ourselves in this vicious cycle returning over and over to this exhaustion and burnout. Mm, that's good. And I think most people hear that and they go, okay, well, what do I do? <laughs> what, what is the first step in facing those narratives and changing them? You know, back to some of what I mentioned earlier about, you know, Jesus lives in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones and grandma lives in your bones. And I say that both positively, you know, we, we, we all have positive legacies that we receive from our families, but we also have negative legacies that we receive from our families. And part of the exploration of what do I do is trying to identify the deep-seated scripts that often inform the way we live in the world. I'll give you one example from my life. One of the messages that I grew up in uh, and grew up with, which I think ironically made me become a pastor, is this life message that said, I have to hold all things together. I have to hold all things together. And I'll give you a, a maybe a one-minute story. My my. My father one day uh, didn't want to go to work. And uh, from time to time, this would happen. He would have, say to my mother, I don't want, he just don't want to go to work. And my mother would be furious that he didn't want to go to work that day. I heard that uh, dad didn't want to go to work. I said, as a 12 year old, I don't want to go to school. And so my mother, I'm not going to school. I want to hang out with dad. She gets furious and has some choice words for me, <laughs> some choice words for my father. And she throws a pillow at him as he's laying down in the bed. He gets up, throws it right back at her. She shoves him. He shoves her back. And when he shoves her back on the bed, she falls on one of my twin sisters who's about uh, six months old at the time. And my little sister's screaming at this point. I run into the room and I pick up my sister who's screaming. And at that moment, I go between my mother and father, pleading them just to stop. I don't know what happened, but in that moment, something was lodged deep in my soul 
that I have to hold this family together. Here I am, a 12-year-old holding my little sister between my mother and father. If, if I don't hold this thing together, this family is going to be torn apart. And so I carry that for many, many years. And I live that often as a pastor. I live that as a husband. If I don't do everything, if I don't hold this family together, if I don't overfunction, things are going to fall apart here. Uh, which means I'm going to find myself living an exhausted life, a burned out life. But I think so much of it is identifying. There's one psychologist, uh, there's a book called You Are Not Your Brain. And in it, they talk about deceptive brain messages, deceptive brain messages that all of us carry to some degree or another. I think if we were to sit down, ideally, maybe with a friend, maybe with a counselor, a pastor, and begin to identify what are the messages that I've been believing that are informing my level of engagement or whatever, my relationships in the world. But again, Jenny, I, I think that takes such a level of slowing down in a world that's so fast and superficial. It takes a lot of work, but I don't know how we get through to experiencing the kind of wholeness and healing that we learn, yearn for without doing this significant work. Mm, so good. We are big believers here in having a counselor in your life, whatever that looks like, whether that's a mentor or somebody that you respect or a paid counselor for many people that's needed. And um, yeah, that has transformed my life as well. And I thank God that I can articulate those things that bound me for so long. And so will you just pray for that person that just teared up at that story because they know they need to do some work and, and they want to do it, but it feels daunting. Oh, absolutely. Lord, for those who are uh, experiencing a sense of anxiety and fear at the prospect of doing this kind of work, I pray that you would give them grace for this moment, knowing that you love them with an everlasting love, that you long to lead them into freedom. And Lord, that whenever we decide to look within, that we don't go alone, that your spirit goes with us. And because you go with us, Lord, you know how to raise us up into newness of life. Uh, give us uh, the courage to look within. And also, Lord, help us to be curiously compassionate with ourselves, not looking for everything wrong, but looking for the ways that you long to heal us in spite of what we've received from the world around us, from our families, from our upbringing. And so give grace, give peace give us an assurance of your spirit that you're with us. And Lord, would you lead us into the kind of life that you long for us to have, a life fueled by wholeness, love, joy, peace, all of the fruit of the spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, wasn't that amazing? We are huge fans of Rich's book, The Deeply Formed Life, here at the IF offices, and we want to make sure that you know about it too. So go check that out. You can find The Deeply Formed Life everywhere books are sold, and we will make sure to put all the links in the show notes so that you can connect with Rich, learn more about his work and the books that he's written. And we will see you next time for another episode of the Made for This podcast. And don't forget, go sign up, iflead2021.com.